Anyway, you know, when I was growing up uh, in Florida in the 1960s, I had two best friends, Daryl Miller and Mike McDonald. They lived in my neighborhood, and we did everything together, played sports together and that kind of thing. And there was a time when we were younger that we had this obsession with uh, superheroes. So we had our own little Justice League of America right there in, in Leewood Forest. And I mean, we would spend sometimes uh, the better part of a day arguing and talking about superheroes. And I'm just curious, how many of you uh, went through a phase, or maybe you're still hung in that phase, you know, where you're just in love with superheroes? How many? Yeah, uh, okay, not a, big, not, not, not a big superhero group today. But anyway, uh, more in the first service. But, uh, but we had long, heated discussions about all of this, like who was faster, Superman or The Flash? And some of you have opinions, just keep them to yourself. But, you know, I mean, Superman is uh, faster than a speeding bullet, which travels at a half a mile per second. But the Flash is supposed to be the fastest person ever. So the question for a long time was, so if Superman and the Flash were in a race, who would win? Well, that was, uh, that was actually uh, action comic number 199 that came out in 1967 when I was in the, uh, in the first, uh, first grade, seventh grade. And it was about a race between Superman and the Flash. And it ended in a tie. But then a couple of years later, there was a rematch. And in that one, the Flash won. And I understand, I, I guess I, I got older and, and didn't keep following it. But there were a couple, couple more races like that. But it was a constant argument. Like, who could jump faster, Spider-Man or Batman? Superman has X-ray vision, and he can look through stuff. Spider-Man has spidey sense. Does that include X-ray vision? Long hours arguing over those kinds of things. Now, Daryl, who liked to pretend like he was Superman, I was the Flash, and Mike was uh, Batman. Uh, um, uh, Daryl said that he had figured out what his kryptonite was. You know what it was? Mayonnaise. And... Uh, <laughs> Daryl hated mayonnaise, and if we went to eat lunch at Mike's house and his mother was fixing, and this was like the staple diet in the 60s for, for me and my friends, bologna sandwiches. Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> hear the groans. Yeah. <laughs> and what about the bologna that had the olives in it, like the olive loaf? Like, oh, man. So anyway, uh, if we, we, we went over to his house and his mother was fixing his sandwiches, Daryl wouldn't sit next to Mike because Mike loved mayonnaise. And Daryl said if he got a, even got a whiff of it, he would lose all his superpowers. So um, crazy stuff. But as kids, we like to imitate people that we admire. We, we, we imitate important people and we Im imitate powerful people and people we, we, we think are cool and we want to be, be like them and talk like them and dress like them. And I told you before that when Christy and Callie were young, both of them loved to play with dolls and they loved playing like they were mommies and, and they would uh, tuck uh, the baby's legs in their shorts, pull over a, a long t-shirt and act like it was a dress and they would walk around holding a baby, pushing a baby in a stroller and pregnant at the same time. And, uh, and, and, and there were many nights that I'd have to go and deliver babies after they had gone to sleep. But now, Nora and Charleston, two of my granddaughters, they carry on that tradition. Now, one of the things about parenting, it's actually scary, is that kids watch you and they like to imitate you. And when they're young, you, you're the model they follow. And since pretty much none of us think that, that we're perfect models, to think that our kids are watching us and imitating us, that's pretty scary because no, we're not always the light that we want to be. 
And you begin to wake up to this reality when you hear your children say something like, like when you hear your daughter scolding her baby, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. And you, you know that you have said that over a thousand times. I think one of the things that caused my dad to quit smoking was seeing me walk around the house with candy cigarettes acting like him. Kids imitate their parents. Now, Paul knew that we also had this tendency to imitate people and behaviors we value. And so he wrote to the community of Christ followers in Ephesus, and he told them, actually commanded them to be imitators of God. Now, telling us to watch our words or to not get carried away with our anger, that's one thing. But to imitate God? I mean, you got to be kidding me. And I hear that, and my tendency is, well, there's, what's the Greek on that? That's got, it's got to be something. It's got to be, it can't mean that. Surely he doesn't expect me to imitate him. I mean, that would be impossible. But that's exactly what Paul says, and that's exactly what the Greek says. <laughs> so how is that even possible? What does it look like? And Paul answers that question in Ephesians chapter 5. So take your Bible and turn to Ephesians 5. We'll get there in a moment, but I'm, I'm actually going to start in, a, in Ephesians chapter 4 as a little review. Now, by the way, if you're new to Fellowship Greenville, one of the things that, we're, that we want, would want you to know about us is that uh, every Sunday morning, most Sunday mornings, we are teaching through whole books of the Bible. And right now, we're working our way through this New Testament book, this New Testament letter called Ephesians. And this was a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers who lived in the Greek city of Ephesus, which today would be in the western part of Turkey. Now, Paul begins this letter by reminding us of what God has done for us in Christ. And he says that God has chosen us to be his children. He has forgiven us. He's put his very own spirit inside us, blessed us with every spiritual blessing uh, in Christ. And he goes on to say that even though we were spiritually dead, that God made us alive by faith in Christ. And now what God is doing in this world is he's calling out and he's creating a new multicultural community of people from every race and tribe and nationality and culture and socioeconomic background. And he's making them all one new humanity in Christ. And God's great plan and his number one desire is that life in this new community would put the life of Jesus on display in this dark world. So because of what God has done in saving us, that's chapters one through three, Paul turns a corner in chapter four and he begins to encourage us to live out the life that God has given us. And he uses this word walk there in chapter four, verse one. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And really this verse is the governing idea for everything he's gonna say in the rest of the letter. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, Paul is not saying that we merit favor with God by keeping God's rules. God doesn't value your worth based on your works. He doesn't determine your worth by what you do and don't do. No, God, uh, Paul is saying because of what God has done for you in Christ, because he's made you worthy, 
He has made you worthy. He's saying live your life in a way that reflects the worth of the one who made you worthy. Walk in a way that's consistent with the new you that God has made you to be. Like, like orange trees produce oranges, apple trees produce apples. Christians, Christ ones, are supposed to produce the life of Christ, a life that looks like Christ. And this is what God has called us to do. He's called us into a personal relationship with himself. You have been saved by grace through faith. And he's called you into this new on-mission community, the church. And he contrasts that by saying in verse 17, so, so, don't live like people who don't know God. People whose lives are characterized by sensuality and greed but rather walk in a manner worthy of the life to which you've been called. And he gives us some examples of what that looks like in verses 25 to 32 in chapter 4. And we looked at this last week. But I'm going to just paraphrase what he said uh, in a different way than I did last week. But he says, as Christ followers, what are the marks of a Christ follower? We tell the truth. We get angry, but we don't stay angry. We don't steal what we work and share with others. We build others up when we talk, and we're kind, forgiving, tender-hearted, loving people. And as we said last week, these are not rules. These are reflections. They're the ways that we reflect to the world who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. They're the ways we reflect what God is like. Now look at chapter 4, verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as, circle that, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, just as, that's the key phrase. Just as is going to lead to imitate. Just as, treat others the way God in Christ treats you. That's the idea. And then Paul expands on that in chapter 5, verse 1. So just pretend like there's no chapter break between chapter 4 and chapter 5. So he goes right on into, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, the Greek word is the word mimetai, and it sounds like mimic, doesn't it? Therefore, be imitators of God. Mimic God. And again, that sounds way beyond our reach. Well, it does sound far-fetched if you look at the Christian life as if it's a life of self-improvement. I mean, most of us tend to think that what God wants is to make me a better version of me. Tweak a little here, tweak a little there, so we act right and behave better. But let me let you in on a little secret. God's ultimate agenda for your life is not to get you to act right. God's ultimate goal for your life is not to get your behavior to conform to some list of rules. What God wants is for, us, for his life to shine through us that his light and life would come through us, and he wants us to be like him, to mimic him. So you see, he doesn't, he doesn't want to make you a better version of yourself. His goal is that you and I reflect him, and this has been, by the way, his intention from the start. In the beginning, in Genesis, back in Genesis, God said, let us make humans 
in our image, in our likeness, which is exactly what Paul said in chapter 4, verse 24, when he's talking about the new self that God made us to be. And he says, as Christ followers, followers, we've been created in the very likeness of God himself. And one of the things that means is that God has always intended to make himself known in this world through people that he's created in his likeness. He wants people to reflect his goodness and his greatness, his rule and his reign, his truth and compassion and mercy and love. God wants us to be his image bearers. And when we bear the image of God in the world, he is glorified, which simply means he is seen for who he really is, the good God that he really is. So the Spirit, through Paul, echoes God's original intention for his people. But for me, it's still hard to get my mind around this whole idea of imitating God. So thankfully, Paul goes on to tell us two things that help us flesh out what it means. First of all, he says, walk in love. Imitating God means to walk in love. That's verses two through six. And then he says, walk in light. Imitating God means to walk in light. That's verses seven through 16. So walk in love, walk in light. That's how Paul tells us to be imitators of God. But I'm pretty dense. I need even more specifics than that. And he breaks that down for us. So let's look at it. Walk in love. Verses two through six, he says in verse two, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Look, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So the model of love that Paul points to here is, of course, it's Jesus. Walk in love just as, that, there it is again, just as equals imitate just as Christ also loved you. Now, let's define the word love biblically from this passage. In this passage, love equals what? Love equals sacrifice. Walk in love as Christ loved you, and here it is, gave himself up for you as a sacrificial offering. See, love cost God something. It cost him the life of his son. Uh, love cost Christ something. He gave up his life. If you love someone, it will cost you something. So men, if I were to ask your wives, does your husband love you? Hopefully she would say, well, yeah, he loves me. But if I ask her the clarifying question, what has he given up for you? How would she answer that? You see, that, and it goes both ways, you understand. But you see, that is the litmus test of love. If you say you love someone, the question is, what have you given up for them? Because love is about sacrifice. So imitating God means walking in love, sacrificial love, living in such a way that you give up some of your wants and your dreams and your goals and your stuff for the sake of others. And that gets right down to where we live, right? I mean, love is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling. Love surrenders some of its wants and needs and gives them up for another person. That makes sense. Sometimes a good way to understand something is to look at its opposite. So what would be the opposite of self-sacrificial love? 
What's the opposite of self-sacrifice? Well, that would be self-indulgence. That's what Paul is going to talk about next, the contrast to Jesus' example of sacrificial love, and the contrast begins in verse 3. Look at it. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. In other words, it doesn't fit with the new you. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who, ha- or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let anybody try to tell you something different. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So don't be partners with them. Now, to really understand this passage, you've got to understand something about the city and the culture of Ephesus and the surrounding areas. Because when we read these verses, our tendency is to think that our day, that we live in a day and time when things are much worse than they were in the days of Jesus and Paul. But that just isn't true. The port city of Ephesus had a population of nearly 250,000 people, and it was considered to be one of the most sophisticated cities in the Roman Empire. Now, here are a couple of artist renderings based on archaeology. Uh, this, is, this is really quite an old picture, but uh, here's, you know, they had drones back in the day, so here's one that a drone took. And, uh, and, but you can see it's a massive, massive city. It was home to more than 20 pagan temples, And life in the city of Ephesus revolved around the fertility goddess Artemis, or Diana as the Romans referred to her. But the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was was called the Neochorus of Artemis, which means that, that the city of Ephesus was the center for Artemis worship. In other words, Ephesus was kind of a Vatican for Artemis, and people came from all over the empire to worship her. The great stone idol of Artemis stood in the center of the temple, and selling smaller versions of Artemis was was big business. Now, there were two major religious festivals each year to celebrate the goddess, and for an entire month, everything would shut down, work stopped, there were athletic games, music, outdoor concerts, singing, dancing, dramatic presentations, and times when the entire city would chant allegiance to Artemis. And there was a huge parade where people would carry their smaller statues of Artemis down to the water and wash them so that she could regain her virginity. So there was this perpetual virginity thing going on. And then they would you ask, well, why? Well, I'm about to tell you. And then they would parade back up the street to the temple, and the worshipers would have sex with sim- temple prostitutes, and there were thousands of them. Because the way you become one in the spirit with Artemis was to have it through intercourse. Now, we're not talking about people having sex in hotel rooms or little booths. We're talking about an open orgy right out on the streets with two to three million people showing up every year to participate in that event to see her lose her virginity and have it restored and then lost again. And most pilgrims came from other parts of the empire. We're talking, though, two to three million people involved in this kind of thing. 
Now, we complain about TV today, and we complain about what's going on in this country, and it's bad, don't get me wrong. It is bad, but the Christians in Ephesus couldn't even walk down the street of their city at certain times without seeing gross public immorality right in front of their eyes. Some people read this and they go, why is Paul so hung up on, uh, on sex? It's because the future was obsessed, uh, the future, the, uh, the culture was obsessed with, with sex. The Christians living in Ephesus were, were a sex-obsessed culture. And so when you read him say, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you, you gotta understand who Paul is talking to. These Christians were participants in all of that before they came to know Christ, and they still lived in the middle of it. Now, Paul says, if you're going to imitate God, if you're going to reflect the life and love of Jesus in your world, and this applies to the first century world or the 21st century world, he says there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality among you. It should not be a part of your life as a Christ follower. Not because it's a rule, but you can't reflect the love of Christ and live that kind of life. That's the point. Now, these words in the Greek, immorality and impurity, they're broad terms. And those words include adultery, hooking up, homosexuality, trans, pornography, pedophilia, polyamory, perversion, sex trafficking, sexual vulgarity, sexually degrading language, greed, covetousness, Basically, every form of immorality you see practiced, promoted, and celebrated today. And what makes these things wrong, what makes them evil in God's eyes is that at the center is self-addiction. It's using people and things for self-gratification. Self-indulgence, which Paul calls in verse 5, idolatry. Have you ever thought about it that way? Like, the essence of adultery is idolatry. The essence of pornography is idolatry. Listen, the essence of every distortion of God's original creation design for male and female and marriage, one man, one woman for life, is idolatry. And Paul is saying, don't imitate the lifestyles of people who don't know God. You didn't learn Christ that way. The way of Jesus does not lead to self-indulgence, but self-sacrifice. That's what it means to walk in love. Now, when we read this and when you hear all this, I think most of us would agree that these behaviors are inconsistent with the life of following Jesus. But there's something a little more subtle that I, I find myself struggling with at times. I, I mean, I might, I might not imitate these behaviors, but, well, let me, let me, let me put, come at it this way. I ran across something by author and speaker Donald Miller that made me really step back and think. He writes, I was wondering the other day why it is that we turn pop figures into idols. I have a theory, of course. I think we have this need to be cool, that there is this undercurrent in society that says some people are cool and some aren't. And it is very, very important to be cool. So when we find someone who's cool on television or on the radio, we associate ourselves with that person 
to feel valid ourselves. And the problem I have with this is that we rarely know what the person believes who we're associating with. The problem with this is that it indicates that there is less value in what people believe and what they stand for. It only matters that they're cool. In other words, who cares what I believe about life? I only care if I'm cool. Because in the end, the undercurrent running through culture is not giving people value based on what they believe and what they're doing with their lives to benefit society. The undercurrent is deciding their value based on whether they are cool or not. Now, I think he's on to something because people today want to imitate celebrities. We want to know about them. We want to talk like them, dress like them, act like them, become like them, even though sadly, many of their lifestyles revolve around the kind of things that Paul addresses right here in this passage. I mean, and, and, and for a lot of people, it's not all that important what they believe or how they live. It's, it's if we think they're cool or not. And that's enough for us to imitate them. A while back, I saw this commercial for a reality show, and the trailer for the show quickly flashed the words, sex, lies, power, cheating, deceit, betrayal. Now think about that. That's the advertisement geared to hook people into watching the show. And it works. And the sad thing is, I, I, sometimes I hear believers talking about those shows and they know it's wrong, but they think it's just kind of funny and cool. Paul says, no, it's not funny and cool. He says, these are the things upon which the wrath of God has come. He says, people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, you're not like that. You're not in that world anymore. That's your former life. You're not to be like that. The life of Jesus and walking in the love of Jesus is the exact opposite of all that. Self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence. And that's what he wants us to see. So he builds on the idea of imitating God by walking in love by also talking about uh, walking in light. Look at it, verse seven. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And... Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, and he, most commentators think he's quoting from a worship song in that day, for this reason, as one of our worship songs says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of God is. So Paul says, you are children of light. You are light. Question is, what does that mean? Well, to live as light is to see with moral ethical clarity. People of light see things as they really are. People of light see as God sees. And again, God doesn't see these things as funny or cool. 
No, let's go back. I, I want to unpack this a little bit more. Back to verses five and six. I rushed through them, so let's slow down and let's look at it again. Because you got to really get these verses and what he's saying to understand this next section. But um, Paul says back in verse six that it's because of these things that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Now, do you notice that word comes is in the present tense? In other words, the, the wrath of God right now is coming upon all who practice these things. So what, what, what does that mean? Well, Paul explains that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. He says that the present wrath of God in this world right now is seen in how God gives people over to their sin. When people continue to sin and go down path after path, God gives them over to that. He says that three times in 14 verses. God has given them up to their sin and their foolish minds get darker and darker and darker. And Paul is saying, you used to be a part of that darkness, but now you are light. And the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So walk as children of light. The point is, he says, these things characterize people who do not know God. Not you, people who don't know God. People, verse 5, he says, who have no part in the kingdom of God. Now, what is that all about? People who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And believers sometimes will read these verses and say, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. I mean, I cracked a dirty joke. I, I watched porn. I had premarital sex. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to hell. No, 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 no. That's not what this verse is saying. That's absolutely not what this verse is saying. He's saying that people who don't know God, people who have rejected the gospel of the grace of God, people who are obsessed with selfish, sensual lifestyles have no part in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, that's not you. Don't be like them. That's not you. That's not who you are. Take no part in that. These verses are not about Christ followers who know these things are wrong, but who at some time have fallen into some of these things. No, these verses, they're not warnings that if you do sin in one of these areas, that your life is over and you're going to hell. This passage is about the idea of two things not fitting together. The idea of things clashing it's about contrast, like last week. Remember the two circles? There was the old humanity and the new humanity. We're the new humanity. He's saying, don't go back and live like the old. This week, the contrast is between uh, darkness and light. And he's saying, you used to live in that darkness. Now, God has saved you, and you, you've been made new, and you're with a new humanity. This is light. Don't go back and live like the darkness and don't try to drag the darkness over into the light and act like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. You see, Paul is talking about how old life and new life don't coexist, how dark and light don't coexist for a Christ follower. It's like you shouldn't eat a piece of chocolate cake and tuna salad at the same time. I, I have a friend, Charles Yu, who's a teaching pastor up at Madison Wisconsin with my friend Chris Dolson, and I listened to his sermon on this passage. He started the sermon with an introduction where he has chocolate cake and he has tuna salad, and he's talking about how these two, th that this passage is a passage about how things don't fit, and he takes a bite of the chocolate cake and he takes a bite of the tuna salad, and it is really 
a disaster. I mean, I, I thought about doing that, then I thought, I'm not doing that. I don't want to taste those two things in my mouth at the same time for the rest of my message. And then, then I also thought, you know, this isn't an airplane and you don't have those barf bags in front of you, so I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm just not doing that. Now, what he's saying is, for a follower of Jesus, the light makes this clear. He says, as we walk in the light, we'll see things as God sees them, and we'll see them for what they really are, and when we see as God sees, we will do as God says, and our light, which is really God's light, God is the light, our light will shine in the darkness. Years ago, when the kids were small, Karen and I took a short trip to some caverns in North Arkansas. I think it was Blanchard Springs, I think was the name of it. By the way, how many of you have been to a cavern or like Mammoth Cave or something like that? Oh, a good number of you. Okay, so if you, if you have been, you know the drill. You go deep, deep, deep underground. You walk along slimy pathways that open up into shadowy rooms with uh, stalactites and stalagmites all over the place. And you have a guide that points out uh, everything, you know, like blind fish and weird salamanders and bat guano, which is really cool, you know. So there are about 30 of us in the group. And at one point, the guide got us all together and he says, he says, I want you to experience darkness. And I'm like, no thanks, I'm fine. Um, but he didn't listen to me. And so they started turning out all the lights one by one, and it got darker and darker and darker. And then he said, everybody hang on to somebody. So I grabbed a hold of Karen, and my kids grabbed both of my legs. And then he hit the last switch, and every went, everything went pitch black dark. And those little arms around my legs were in a death grip. You could feel your pupils getting bigger and bigger, but you couldn't see anything. And then the guide gave a little lecture, and, those, and, and, and he said, we are now in a room that is 91% dark. And I'm thinking, seems like 100% dark to me. And, and I mean, because you know how it is. Usually when you're in a dark room, your eyes get accustomed to the darkness and you can start to see things. Well, not in that 91% darkness, you can't. We couldn't see anything. You could take your hand and wave it in front of your face and you could feel 58 degree air brushing up against your face, but you couldn't see the outline of your hand. So then the guide says, now I wanna show you the power of light. And uh, he was about 30 feet away from us and he took one single match and he lit it. And everybody looked really silly because we were all still doing this. You know, but that one small match lit that huge room so we could see our shadows on the wall. It was amazing. It didn't take much, just one little match, but it lit up that, that, that whole room, and you could see the guide and the stalactites and the stalagmites and the people. Everything was made visible when it was exposed to the light. Now, some of you look at me and you read when we go through a passage like this and, you, and, and, and you're like, I, I hear what you're saying, Charlie, but you just don't understand. You have no idea how dark my world is. Some of you college students, look, I, I know what dorm life was like back in the 70s because back in the 70s, guys had these uh, very sexually explicit posters up on their walls and hallways were scented with pot and People were sleeping around. But listen, I know it's so much worse today. 
is so much worse today, so much darker today. And some of you work in environments where you can't get through the day without hearing somebody tell a crude joke or hear someone tell a story that's sexually degrading to women. Some of you work for people who are just motivated solely by greed. It's their way of life. And, and, and you're thinking, like, what possible good could I do? I mean, it's just me. I, I'm just one Christian in a dark world. What, what do I do? Well, Paul tells us. He says, first of all, don't imitate people who don't know God. He says it twice. Verse 7, do not be partners with them. Verse 11, take no part with them. Now, he's not saying quit your job, change schools, move out of town into a little community and build a holy, holy bubble. No, no, how, how can light shine in darkness if you separate yourself from people who need to see the light? Now, Paul didn't, that's not what Paul is saying. He, he's, but he is saying there are times when you may have to just kind of excuse yourself from the conversation. He is saying don't imitate those kinds of things just to fit in. Rather, he says, number two, he says expose them. Now, he says that twice, too. He says in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. And in verse 13, he says, all things become visible when they're exposed to light. So the question is, what does it mean for a Christian to expose the deeds of darkness? This is very important. You need to hang with me for the last seven or eight or 30 minutes. No, just kidding. <laughs> if you study Paul's ministry carefully and you look at what he says here with this list of sexually indulgent behaviors, and you hold that over here, and then you look at a passage like, Acts 19 that tells you the story of Paul coming to immoral pagan Ephesus and you look at how Paul conducted himself there, what you find is that Paul did not come right out and directly, angrily condemn the pagan Ephesians and their beliefs. In fact, when a riot broke out in the city because of Paul's preaching, some men said in his defense that these men have not blasphemed our goddess, Acts 19.37. So Paul and his team, Priscilla, Aquila, Onesimus, they didn't show up and picket outside the temple of Artemis. They didn't stand on street corners screaming at people to repent lest they go to hell. He didn't name names, point fingers, belittle pagan gods, even though he did tell them that gods made with human hands are no gods at all. But what he did is he exposed the darkness by teaching and living the truth found in Jesus. And as he taught the people about Jesus, how Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended into heaven, as he told the people about Jesus and the life he offers and made possible through his death and resurrection, it became clear to some people that Jesus was God and Artemis was not. The light was Jesus, and Jesus drew people to the light. He didn't shine a blinding light of accusation in people's eyes. He just held up a match, and that match drew more and more people to the truth of Jesus. You see, Paul was a whole lot more concerned with teaching Christ followers to let their light shine than he was in going around pointing out how bad and wrong non-believers are. Now, many Christians think that exposing darkness means angrily pointing out all the wrong things we see in our culture and shaking our fingers in the faces of people like those that Paul describes here. 
Let them know you don't like their, their cussing and their crude jokes. Let them know you don't like their sex-indulgent lifestyles. Point out how offensive their lifestyles are to you. Jesus didn't do that with the people he was trying to reach. He didn't create this us and them polarity. And Paul didn't do that either. His, Paul's approach was not to go around correcting people's language and lifestyle. He just imitated the life of Jesus in front of them. He walked in the love of Jesus and he shined the light of the truth of Jesus just by just like holding up a match. Sometimes I think Christians, when they go to church and the preacher's up and he's railing and ranting against uh, uh, all that's going on out there in the world and he's condemning everything, Christians think when they come to a church and they hear that, some Christians think, well, we've done something today. We've listened to the preacher condemn all of that, and so we've really done something. A lot of people look at social media that way, like posting something, you've really done something. No, 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 no. But all people do when they do that is they're just reinforcing their own beliefs. And too often, what happens is we begin to look at the people that God wants us to reach like they're enemies, and we demonize them. Hear me, you will not be light in your workplace, in your classroom, in your neighborhood if you react to people whose lifestyles you can fit, consider offensive, if you treat them like enemies. God's saying, you are light, so be light. Walk in the light and the darkness will be exposed. He's saying, don't just stand around calling the darkness dark. Be a light. Be a light in how you deal with conflict. Be a light by forgiving people who hurt you. Be a light by being kind and tender-hearted with people who are not kind to you. Be a light in the way that you talk to people that you disagree with. Be a light in your marriage. Be a light as a single person in maintaining your moral purity. Be a light, but not a blinding light, an illuminating light, a guiding light. Several years ago, I attended my, post, uh, my annual postdoctoral treat up in Wisconsin. While I was there, my friend, Chris Dolson, told a story about a woman in his church who faced a difficult situation in her world. And I'm gonna read you part of the email that she wrote. Uh, she was a recent graduate of the University of Wisconsin there in Madison, and she was an education ma major, but she, and she was on staff with Athletes in Action, which is a part of CREW. And she writes, I was in a health curriculum class for education students. The assignment was to go to a store and buy some condoms to fill out a worksheet about the work, uh, about the experience of going to the store and buy them. The point was to see how a student might one day, uh, that a student that she might teach one day would feel about going and purchasing uh, condoms and see what kind of information students would need to know to buy them. So you get the assignment. She's gonna be a teacher someday, and the assignment is to give these future health teachers firsthand experience in buying condoms so they can know what it's like for their students. So she says, I didn't feel right about this assignment because as a Christ follower and one involved in leadership in a campus ministry, I felt like my witness could be damaged. If I walked into a Walgreen to purchase them and bumped into a student that I had shared Christ with, what would that say about my character? That student wouldn't know that it was for an assignment, and so to me, this would, this would make me not above reproach, and I didn't wanna risk damaging my witness for the sake of doing the assignment. 
So I decided to fill out the worksheet and give my perspective and reasoning for not following through with the assignment. And this way, I was still completing the written work, but not in a way that was designed. And I was, <laughs> I was a little nervous that my prof would not approve of what I had done since I didn't purchase the condoms. She says, the very opposite was true. When I turned in the worksheet, I explained my situation to her, and she was surprisingly sensitive to my position. She told me that she didn't even consider that one of her students would be in my position, and she apologized to me for not thinking through all the different possible scenarios for completing the assignment. I got a perfect grade on the sheet and was commended by my prof for really thinking through my values and deciding not to follow through with the activity that she had designed. Now, this woman was a real liberal. In other words, she was a real liberal. Not the progressives we see today. During my end of semester meeting with this prof, we not only talked about my teaching experience and learning from the class, but the prof shared some things she had learned from me. She told me that she had gained new insight from me and appreciated my honesty and openness about my values and that my stance on the condom assignment helped to broaden her perspective of the students she teaches. It ended up being a really neat way to build bridges with this prof, and she's actually on my support team now with Athletes in Action. One little match in a very dark world can make a huge difference. So Paul says, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of your time. Walk in love, walk in light, and you'll actually be imitating God. And you will reflect the light of Jesus in a world that's lost in darkness. Father God, thank you for your word and for how clear it is. Thank you that what we've looked at today is not about keeping rules. It's not, it's not about trying harder to do better. It's, it's about really living out of the life of Jesus that you have planted in us in the Holy, in the Holy Spirit. So strengthen us with power by your spirit in our inner being so that we will live our lives each day realizing just how much you love us and how much you've done for us and then let that love flow through us so that we can be a light that puts Jesus on display uh, for all to see. And we ask this in his name. Amen.